in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And then from Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live on, in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy God is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw when lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top, top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while I was lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. 
then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, and its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it and leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that the Most High has issued against my Lord and King. You will be driven away from people and will live in the wild, with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and give them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came down from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorify him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. 
No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour will return to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in the pride in pride he is able to humble this is the word of the lord thanks be to god thank you for reading such a long reading and good morning to you all very nice to see you all i want to have a look at this passage there's a very big meaty passage in uh, daniel 4 but i'm going to pray first please pray with me Father God, we thank you for the mystery that when two or three are gathered together, you are with them. We thank you that we are your people and that you have spoken to us through the prophets and finally through your son. Bless us this morning as we meditate on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Apparently, uh, Julius Caesar said, I came, I saw, I conquered in Latin, of course, which is a useful quote to know in Trivial Pursuit, but it doesn't tell you much about Julius Caesar at all. Supposedly, they were the words that he used in 47 BC when he stood before the Senate House and told them about a quick and decisive victory that he had come, that he had had. I came, I saw, I conquered. But if we think that those three words sum up a complex character like Julius Caesar, we aren't really listening to the pages of history. Life is far more complicated than a bumper sticker. Faith is far more complicated than a church sign. And life is more complicated than a Facebook post. Caesar's life was recorded There were many ancient historians who wrote about him, Sallust and Cassius Dio and Cicero, Plutarch, Suetonius, and they wrote these long and impressive stories about this man we know, the historical Julius Caesar. And Caesar's story certainly wasn't, I came, I saw, I conquered, but it was a story of a person who was raised in enormous affluence with the thought that he would become someone powerful and important, but I'm sure his family have no idea just how important he would become. The historians tell us about his life as a young soldier and his military victories, and then how it was almost all cut short when he was stolen by pirates, and then he was freed, came back to Rome and started his political career and absolutely transformed the Roman Empire. He wrote himself about his conquests of what we know today as France and Switzerland. And it's also the story of this man who in his 50s fell in love with a queen, Queen Cleopatra of Egypt, and talks about the passion of these two. It was his story as a writer as well, 
And finally, the historians write of that end on the Ides of March in 44 BC when he was murdered outside the Senate House. His story is full and it can never be summed up in three words, I came, I saw, I conquered. And so too, when we look at another ancient history character, Nebuchadnezzar, that we've had read to us about this morning, let's not jump too quickly to try and to distill down a whole chapter or a whole book of Daniel into a couple of short statements about this character. We always need to be aware of oversimplification, don't we, when we look at characters about the complexity of a life. We could try and look at something like Daniel 4 and try to funnel down too quickly to, hey, what's, what's it really about? And we could end up saying that it's about a man who recognised that he was proud and he had been brought low by the God of the universe. We could say it's like a conversion story. Or we could say that the whole chapter can be summed up pithily in God is in control, which is kind of true, but it doesn't accord a chapter like this the dignity that it deserves. It's the same as when we look at the whole of the Bible. The Bible is not a collection of pithy statements. It's not a collection of quotes. The Bible is a very complex library detailing the history of God's people and God's interactions with his people. It's a complex story. The Bible is confounding at times, it's puzzling, it's creative, it uses a whole range of literary devices and styles, it's multi-layered, it's universal, and it's profoundly personal. And so when we look at the Bible, we don't want to jump too quickly to, we can just sum it up in a few words, and if we look at a chapter like this, Let's not jump too quickly to the moral of the story. Listen to the narrative, listen to the story, to the richness. For story is the form that God has chosen to reveal himself. God does not present the Bible as a series of quotes, but as a series of stories of unfolding, of richness, of who he was and who we are and how the two intersect. The Bible is largely story and it's story that is told poetically and it's story which is understood through correspondence. Some parts of the Bible are quite surreal and other parts are very philosophical. There is the wisdom writings there is the writings of the stories that Jesus told. If an engineer was writing, he wouldn't come up with the Bible. It's not brief, it's full. It's not a series of inspirational quotes that you can fit on a poster with some cuddly animals. God's here with us. What we often want to do, I think, in our culture is smooth out the differences. 
we don't like a lot of complexity and yet the Bible is nothing if not complex. The Bible actually stands proudly in its complexity and depth. When Jesus walked the earth, he didn't come out with just a few quotes. He told stories. He didn't say, look, I think you should just look after yourselves. He told the story of the Good Samaritan. So I want us to, to live this richness of this story this morning and see how it functions. Uh, I, I thank uh, Robin for reading it uh, for us because it's a very long story to read. You may have noticed that it's bookended, this story. <clears throat> how it starts is how it ends. It has these really big statements about who God is. In verse 3 and verse 34, they're almost identical. Verse 3, how great are God's signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And verse 34, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And those two bookends, they're great, aren't they? But actually, those big words, those big declarations don't mean much to us unless we see the story fleshed out. It is like when people say God is love. It's one of those statements which rolls so easily off the tongue, but we need to see it enacted. We need to see it lived out. And when we see it in the person of Jesus, we go, aha, uh -huh, I now know what you mean. This chapter with these bookends, they do sound like a Charles Wesley hymn, <clears throat> and we probably will say yes to them. <clears throat> but in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the power of the words is unleashed. And the one word that is used in this chapter a couple of times that I would like you to think about is the word sovereign. When we hear that God is sovereign, it's a true statement, but it's a bit pallid by itself. It doesn't encourage us to think of God as profoundly who he is, the God of the universe. But when we read the story, we start fleshing out this word sovereign and it becomes something mighty and awesome and personal and challenging. So let's have a look at this story in Daniel 4. The historical character, Nebuchadnezzar, as historical as Julius Caesar, was a mighty autocrat who ran an entire empire. There is lots of archaeological and written evidence about him. And uh, many years ago, when I was an ancient history teacher and not a Christian, I used to teach the book of Daniel uh, because it was one of the written sources which would uh, point us in the direction of what this character was like and what he had actually done. He describes himself in all his magnificent power as contented and prosperous in verse 4, which is an understatement. He was a palace dweller. He ruled an empire. 
and he had the, life, the power of life and death over all of his subjects. No rule of law was going to stop him. But let's not jump too quickly to Nebuchadnezzar being a template for all people in power. He existed as an individual in time and space, and he dealt with God at a particular period of his life and in a particular period of history. He, with his extraordinary position in the ancient world and through world history, the amount of power he wielded was immense. And yet, a vision, a dream, brought him to his knees. We're told in verse 5 that he has this vision and it terrified him. He may have held the power of being an absolute monarch in temporal terms. He may have had immense wealth, but as a man he could be brought to his knees by a dream. Doesn't that humanize him as a person? He's no longer just some template of a powerful character, but he becomes the the human who is prone to the weaknesses and fragility and frailty that we are all are prone to. We are often at the mercy of our feelings, of our emotions, of our anxieties, of our worries. And in this very human state, he seeks answers. He sought assistance from his seer professionals. Uh, you learn about the whole range of them that he had. He had magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners, and he told them the dream and they couldn't understand it. And intriguingly, he seeks out then the Jewish seer, Daniel, and he tells him the dream. Now, lest we think Nebuchadnezzar is a very straightforward character who was without God and then found God, we have the puzzling verse 8 that you'll see in your notes. In verse 8, he says, he, Daniel, is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. And the spirit of the holy gods, plural, is in him. Isn't that interesting? That Nebuchadnezzar, it's not a straightforward, I believed in my gods, Marduk, Bel, and then I believed in Jehovah. There's this mess in the middle of the one he still names after his gods, and that he is a polytheist while he's going through this process. And he still names his God, my God, not Jehovah. He sees in Daniel something which is beyond every other spiritual person that he has encountered. Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual journey is complex. And we surely understand that. Our spiritual journeys are often complex, aren't they? They rarely are a simple thing of us moving from not belief to belief. For when we get to belief, 
we then come into the picture with all our complexity and Nebuchadnezzar was no different. We often want simple and straightforward stories of people's spiritual life, but instead we have complexity in reality. The very powerful monarch was disturbed within and he seeks the Jewish seer. And then the vision is shown. And the vision is clear about this enormous tree. Now, if you're anything like me, and you're reading through something like Daniel, you'll skip over the vision. That's what I do. I might be completely godless. Uh, what I do when I read the Bible is I skip over sections that I don't think are all that important or interesting. Why do I do that? Well, it's out of arrogance. I think on genealogy, I don't need the genealogy. I'll just skip through. I want to get to the heart of the matter. But it's, isn't it intriguing that the Bible is not written about the heart of the matter? It's written through story. And of course, a rebuke for me is reading something like this and go, no, 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 slow down. What does it say? God has chosen to speak to us in this manner. Christians often know verses. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Wonderful. What's the whole story of John 3? What's the whole story of John's gospel? We whip these verses out and we forget the whole richness of the context. The context here is this metaphor of a tree, a vision of a glorious, verdant tree, which is enormous. And it's a tree which is not real. Uh, for you can tell in verse 11, its top touched the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth. No tree is that large at all. It's a metaphor. It signifies something beyond. It's this cornucopic vision of life. All good comes out of this, and then an angelic messenger appears and says the tree is going to be cut down, and then the image of the tree changes to a hymn in verse 15. And we realize that this tree is a person, and this person is going to be cut down. Let him be given the mind of an animal. If you have time during the week, have a Google uh, the William Blake painting of Nebuchadnezzar when he was turned into an animal, metaphorically. It's a great painting with all the passion of what it's like to be transformed into something which you feel barely yourself. And why is this going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, the extraordinary vision depicts a truth that so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign. Do you feel the richness of this word sovereign now? It's getting fatter, isn't it? The sovereign God is not manageable. It's not like those stained glass windows where you have an effete Jesus and the lammies are frolicking at his feet. Rather, this God really is the sovereign God. God has intruded upon Nebuchadnezzar's affluence and position 
in a terrifying way. The bookend where we started is getting richer. See, when we hear that God is the Most High, it can glibly slip off our tongue easily. But when we see what the Most High actually looks like, almighty, all-powerful, sovereign, he becomes far more potent. God then is not tameable or containable, nor very palatable. God then is awesome, fearsome, and overwhelming in scope. Daniel then responds and says, well, you've told me the vision, I will tell you my interpretation. But Daniel doesn't sit as a simple character either. For when he hears the vision, he is, we're told, perplexed and terrified. Wherever we get the idea that somehow you're going to be on God's side, be Christian and not be fearful or afraid or overwhelmed at times, is a myth. The person of true spirituality doesn't lose their humanity Daniel is viewing God up close, and it isn't sheer joy, it's daunting and frightening. And as God's messenger, Daniel is not presenting news which looks good at all, but it looks very unpalatable. So Daniel starts very tentatively and says, my Lord, if only this dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Get the scene that Daniel is before this enormously powerful autocrat and he utters these dreadful words, you are that tree. It's a moment of intake breath, isn't it? If it was a stage drama, the audience would sit there in pregnant silence. What's he just said? How's the king going to respond? Is his life going to end? He's just told Nebuchadnezzar that you're going to be cut down. Almost everything is going to be taken from you until you acknowledge that the Most High is that word sovereign over all kingdoms of earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. See, the word sovereign doesn't mean much until we see it in action. It's certainly not the God who is cutesy that we feel really comfortable presenting in Sunday school, I think. It's the God we have largely eschewed in our culture. For we want God to fit the package of our life. We want God to be mild and loving. We do really want a domesticated God, not the ferocious lion. Daniel then, I presume, tentatively gives advice. 
renounce your sins and stop your oppressive wickedness. Isn't it similar to the words that Jesus said to people? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Change, turn to this God. In neat stories, in neat spiritual stories, the person hears the warning and they go, oh, I'm going to change. But we know true stories aren't like that. And this story is not like that. Nebuchadnezzar hears this. He's gone through this incredible experience. He's been overwhelmed. But 12 months go by and it doesn't seem to have touched the sides. I, I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar forgot the interpretation or did he months down the track think was it really that big a deal or did time dull his fear and quest for knowing probably we have lived through this many of us where we have a time where we recognize how true and real God is but somehow that slips away Whatever happened in that 12 months, there's this moment when it all comes crashing down with this very dramatic declaration of Nebuchadnezzar, when he says, and you want to stop him, don't say this, we know what's coming. When he says in verse 30, is not this the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He is at the center of his universe and God shouts out at him effectively, no, you are not. And his raveling, unraveling is immediate. What was said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. It's a story that I reel back from. I don't know about you. I don't reel back from God being told that he is, we're told that God is sovereign, but when I see his sovereignty at work, it takes me to a place of gravitas, of seriousness. This God is not to be trifled with. I teach uh, chaplains who work in public institutions, in prisons, in hospitals, in mental health care facilities, in the community. And I teach theological students who are just starting their careers. And I see the enormous temptation for them is how they present God. Their temptation is to present God who is more akin to the Dalai Lama, smiling, profound, not too worried about the details, and present. And yet this is the reality of the God we have, the God of Daniel 4. The God of the Bible is not there to be made suburban or politically correct or manageable. And you can't write this God off as Oh, that's just the God of the Old Testament. For the story of Jesus with his friend Lazarus is the same, isn't it? His friend Lazarus dies and Jesus could have stopped it, but he didn't. And he lets Mary and Martha go through grief for four solid days. Have you ever had anyone you love die? 
He let them go through that. Why? We're told in John, it's for God's glory. It's the same story as Daniel. God is intent on showing us who he is in a manner which we often don't accommodate in our small lives. Nebuchadnezzar goes through this extraordinary experience and then the, the dawning, the opening comes in verse 34. I raised my eyes toward heaven. Another metaphor, I presume, when he goes, what? This God is sovereign and my sanity is restored. And for Nebuchadnezzar, all the pain was worth it. For he declares the truth, I praise the Most High, I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. And he really knew what the sovereign God was like. I think we often don't want the God of heaven. We often don't want the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for he is too demanding and exacting, too powerful for ones like us who actually want to be in control of our lives. This chapter for me is a chapter of alignment. Nebuchadnezzar was out of alignment and then he came into alignment. He was aligned above God and then he ended up being aligned under God, his appropriate position as a person. In, in conclusion, God was very gracious to Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't he? He was very patient and very kind. Nebuchadnezzar did not deserve God to be so attentive to him. The God of the universe bothered with him in his arrogance. Nebuchadnezzar did not deserve God to take such effort to help him see the truth, but this is the God we worship. This is the God of grace. Nebuchadnezzar was caught up in his own pleasure, in his own position, in his comfort, sound familiar to us and God expends such energy to say no this is who I am worship me God is very gracious to us and our wandering ways he is patient with our disobedience and he is outlandishly generous in his offer to us of new life in Jesus Christ it costs the life of his son, the Lord Jesus, so that we may call this awesome sovereign our father. God is not a Christmas present. Oh, how lovely. But he does as he pleases, and no one can hold back his hand. And the question for us is, have I aligned myself under him. Let me pray. Father God, we do come before you in all your awesome majesty, acknowledging with embarrassment 
how we get carried away with our own importance. Help us by the power of your spirit to align ourselves under your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.